Welcome again to this uh, gathering of Rotherham Evangelical Church. Happy you could make it this afternoon. As, uh, as Nick already mentioned, we're starting a new series today in the book of Proverbs. And uh, it's a, that's a first, I think. Is that a first here at, at REC, at least in the more recent memory of Ian Jones? So I hope uh, the nice thing about the series is that uh, they kind of can stand as one-offs in the summer. So if you are away for holiday for a couple weeks, you can kind of dip back in, and it's, it's like you've not lost no time at all. We'll be in Proverbs 1, 1 through 7 today, and that's on page 635, I believe, in the Pew Bible. So if you do, you should be able to see those red Pew Bibles in front of you. We'll be on page 635. You'll need that as we go through the talk, because I'll be referring to the words on that page at various times during today's talk. In your opinion, what is the good life? What vision and standard of life are you either explicitly pursuing or are you at least subconsciously pursuing? If you could have right now your ideal life, what would that look like? I'm not just asking what kind of job do you want or I'm not just asking how much money you need to kind of live that good life. I'm thinking the whole package of life, where you live, who your friends are, what your kids are like, what your spouse is like, what kind of job you have, what kind of authority you possess, what standard of living you possess, what kind of life do you live in all aspects. Take a minute, envision the good life yourself. Is your vision of the good life actually good? Meaning, if you actually attained that life, would it bring true joy, inner contentment? Would it actually cause others that you know and that live around you to flourish as well? Would it bring them joy and them contentment? Well, this might surprise you, but the Bible, too, wants you to live a good life. But God, as the Creator defines what this good life is, and he even tells you how to live it. The good life as presented in the Bible is all about flourishing. It's all about living honorably and justly and virtuously, successfully, even discerningly. You see, living this good life is far less about the circumstances you find yourself in, and much more about the kind of person that inhabits all those circumstances. You see, a very few people in this world will ever live within the circumstances they dream about. If your vision of the good life depends on your circumstances, the perfect family, the perfect job, the certain amount of money, then even thinking about this good life is perhaps a bit crushing because it's mostly unattainable. And even if it was attainable, you would still have to ask, would it bring true joy and satisfaction? Even more, would it bring true joy and satisfaction and flourishing to those around you? As you get older and you get older, you start to realize you just can't control your circumstances. Suffering comes. Disappointment comes to the rich and the poor, the smart and the not-so-smart. Rejection comes. Failure comes. Doubts come upon you. The Christian message is that you can flourish 
in every circumstance. Even more, the biblical message is that you can find the path of flourishing beyond the grave. The truly good life is the life prepared to flourish eternally. Well, if you want to find the epicenter in the Bible for practical instruction about how to live this good life, look no further than the book of Proverbs. The Bible, right, is one big story of redemption. We talk about that often here. And in the Old Testament, kind of act one of God's story, God will interject his voice at various times, and he kind of interjects his voice in three ways of communication. The first way is he gives people the law. The law is like God's clear line in the sand. You step over this line, and it's going to go badly for you. It's very direct. It's very clear. No confusion. The second way God speaks to us is in the Old Testament is through his prophets, right? The prophets are these people who intervene with the very voice of God into Israel's history, and they enthuse God's people to live faithfully by giving them warnings of future judgment or warnings of future blessing. The third type of speech that we see in the Old Testament we come to today. It's called wisdom literature. The book of Proverbs is considered wisdom literature. You're probably familiar with what Proverbs are. Proverbs are short, memorable, kind of bite-sized bits of truth. You've probably heard them, again, from your mother or grandmother. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. Look before you leap, right? Those aren't in the Bible, but those are Proverbs we use on a day-to-day basis, perhaps. But these Proverbs, they're not like laws that apply universally and absolutely. Have you ever looked at some kind of legal document? Perhaps, uh, you know, a last will. Uh, You know, a last testament. Or uh, perhaps a mobile contract. Maybe that's one that we've seen more often. They tend to speak very precisely, very directly. Noting multiple qualifications. They're incredibly, they're not very memorable or poetic at all. In fact, they're, they're rather a bore to read. That's why we usually just sign our name at the end of the contract and kind of just glance over it and hope we're not signing our life away, don't we? The Proverbs are exactly the opposite. They're incredibly, incredibly memorable. They're intended to shape your character for the million of decisions you have to make where the laws don't apply. The great thing about Proverbs is that it's just so practical. It's right where we live every day. Many of people, I mean, we have life groups. Most of the people in here are in, are in these life groups. And when we, co- when we gather as a life group, people come and we'll, they'll ask for advice about something going on in their life. They'll ask for prayer for something going on in their life. And, you know, I don't think in all my time being in a life group before I was here and now that we're here, I've ever had someone, you know, say something like this. Oh, you know, there's, there's a colleague at work. She just got a promotion, and, and, and she's driving now this new beautiful car. Do you guys think I should steal it? We don't, we don't often ask questions that where the law directly applies. That's fairly obvious. Well, you don't steal it, right? Most of the questions are in those ambiguous areas. Who should I marry? What job should I take? Should I, how should I act with my kids in this way? Should we go on this vacation? Should I move to this church? Should I do this or do that? All these very important decisions, but there's no law that I'm kind of, no rule of life that just applies immediately. 
So most of our decisions don't fall under any clear command or guideline of Scripture. Yet these numerous decisions that we make every day, they shape who we are. They shape who we'll become. They bring success or failure. They bring happiness or grief. These decisions that you make every day form your very identity. And not only that, your choices affect all those around you, your children, your family, your co-workers, your friends. Well, if most of the decisions you make don't have a crystal clear command, how in the world do you not make shipwreck of your life and the lives around you? Well, the answer is wisdom. You need wisdom for all the decisions where the rules that you live by just don't apply. This book of Proverbs, then, is incredibly practical, and it's also incredibly important. Proverbs 1, 1 to 7 is where we're going to be today, and that's what we're about to read in a second. This tells you why the book of Proverbs was written. It's the prologue to the book. It was written to give you wisdom. This little prologue also tells us what wisdom is. It tells us who wisdom is for. And lastly, it tells us where to begin if we want this wisdom. So let's read there in page 635, Proverbs 1, 1 to 7. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for receiving instruction and prudent behavior, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning. And let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables and sayings and riddles of the wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Well, before we go any further, I want to give you a quick, I want to actually look at verses 5 and 6. Because that's going to set us up to give you a little how-to guide when approaching the book of Proverbs. I want to begin by drawing your attention again to verses 5 and 6. Let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, sayings and riddles of the wise. You see, these bite-sized, memorable bits of truth, they're treasures. But they're easily misused. And when they're misused, they can be actually harmful. So we desperately need guidance. We need wisdom even to get more wisdom out of the book, is what it's saying. Imagine you're, you're, you're a tribal man, perhaps, who, who's never encountered a, a modern society in your life. And for some reason, this tribal man finds himself in the middle of England. Okay, He's never used currency to purchase something. And, and, and imagine someone walks by him in the street and, you know, he, he's, he's a bit dirty. He's got a runny nose, doesn't have all his clothes. He's been a bit sick. And, and that person naturally maybe thinks he's homeless. And out of the generosity of their heart, they give him a 50-pound note. And the man will sensibly, he's got a bit of a cold. He's, his nose is runny. He sees this piece of paper and he begins blowing his nose with it. What would you do? You would immediately cry, stop. You're wasting this valuable gift. You see, even a valuable gift, wrongly used, is worthless. You might begin reading these Proverbs and think to yourself, these just aren't true. Let me give you an example. Proverbs 13, 6. Righteousness guards the person of integrity, but wickedness overthrows the sinner. 
You'll find this theme throughout the entire book. The righteous generally prosper and the wicked suffer. But we all know that is just not the case all the time, isn't it? We certainly know bad, unjust people who have prospered with money and fame and long life. And we equally know many good people, many right, seemingly righteous people who have lived in poverty, who have lived short lives, who have suffered. So first, you must understand that this book is not giving you absolute promises that are always fulfilled in this life. This book isn't giving you absolute promises that are always fulfilled in this life. Proverbs is not your sort of spiritual vending machine where you kind of enter the correct code, righteousness, good parenting, and then out comes the candy bar of long life and good kids. Often these promises found in Proverbs will be fulfilled in this life. That's why they're there. But many will not be realized until the life after death. What the wise person understands is that although many of these promises are fulfilled here and now, many will remain unfulfilled until we meet the grave. And that's when God's final application of justice will happen. Secondly, we need to remember that one individual proverb doesn't give all of God's wisdom about a particular subject. Proverbs will provide you with a wealth of wisdom and insight not simply by memorizing them, but by using them at the right time. There's no better place to see this than Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. I meant to put it up for you, but I forgot about that. So I'll just read it to you. These are two verses back to back. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be just like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. On the surface, it might look like these two proverbs are complete contradictions. The first one says, don't answer a fool according to his folly. The second one says, answer a fool according to his folly. But you see, in reality, they are both true, right, in different situations. You must understand that these proverbs are only helpful when applied in the right situation. In fact, the wrong use, the wrong application of the proverbs can actually be dangerous. Proverbs 26, verse 7. A proverb in the mouth of a fool is like a thorn bush in a drunkard's hand. You can almost imagine the kind of havoc a, a babbling drunk would, would, would wreak on his, on his household if he comes into the household holding a thorn bush and he's pretending he's a, a, a knight with a sword, right? That's what a fool is like with a proverb at the tip of his tongue. So Proverbs are not meant to only be memorized, but internalized. You need wisdom in order to get more wisdom. Okay, that is officially the longest introduction I have ever had when I've preached. But we'll be pretty quick from here. So we'll look at three points in, this, in these verses. The first one is wisdom, what it is. Or what is it? I guess it just changed since I've... Uh, Ian changed my slides, and he, he wanted to put that in uh, as a question mark. <laughs> the book of Proverbs largely originates from King Solomon. Not entirely, but largely it was collected by probably King Solomon and his court. Some of it originates from him. It was practical and moral advice for the people in God's kingdom. It was largely used as a guide for parents to their children or, or teachers to their students. And in verse 2... 
we see the purpose for writing Proverbs, for gaining wisdom. Wisdom simply means skillful living, being skilled at living. You see, the Hebrew word translated wisdom here is a bit curious. It shows up in describing the work of an artisan, like a sculptor, or or a, a fine builder, the people who built the temple. It's saying those people needed wisdom with their craft. So in the book of Proverbs, to be wise means to be skilled at living successfully, even when the rules of life don't apply. Wisdom is kind of like this big, all-encompassing concept that informs how we live well. But this word has several, what I'll call, companions that fill its meaning out. And you'll find these companions throughout the whole book of Proverbs, and they kind of fill out the meaning of what wisdom is. And the first one is the word discipline. The first companion of wisdom is discipline. We see the word used immediately after wisdom in verse 2. For gaining wisdom and instruction. That word instruction carries the idea of discipline. In fact, it's, it's always translated discipline almost after this point. The, the idea is that if you're going to attain wisdom, you need to be the kind of person who receives loving discipline or correction from God. The assumption here is that, is that we don't kind of enter into this world as morally blank slates. We're not kind of naturally disposed to living wisely. No, no, we need some external guiding force to instill discipline and correction so that we don't live foolishly. Proverbs 3, 11 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines the ones he loves as a father disciplines the son he delights in. See, the foolish person can't take correction. Chapter 15, verse 13. Those who disregard discipline, they despise themselves. But the one who heeds correction gains understanding. The person who can't receive correction, who can't heed a warning, who can't swallow their pride and accept critique, that person, the Proverbs say, actually hates, not God, but himself. Why? Because instead of learning from a gentle warning of correction, the only way they learn is by the experience of consequences. A second companion of wisdom is the word prudence. We see prudence show up, at least the way it's translated in verse 3. The the Proverbs are written for receiving instruction in prudent behavior, and in verse 4, for giving prudence to those who are simple. You know, prudence is probably not the best word to communicate the idea here in, in, in the English language. Um... Yeah, it's just not a word we use very often, and when we do, it kind of has this, I would say, derogatory kind of uh, meaning. The idea is the ability to be shrewd. The ability to perceive people and situations so that you can successfully navigate relationships and business deals and all kinds of encounters. Someone with shrewdness has the ability to analyze and evaluate a situation beyond just the raw facts. They can see something for what it really is. It's a person who is not very naive. You can't pull the wool over their eyes. They see through things. In my old job, I managed the dean's office of a university, and I had the opportunity to participate in a weekly cabinet leadership meeting for the school. We discuss all kinds of issues about the school, from the budget to academic standards to disciplinary issues. 
And we'd often get into these complex discussions and debates over maybe a particular matter. Like clockwork, there's a certain cadence to our meetings, I felt like. You know, someone would come with a piece of, of, of data, and they'd present that data. And someone would have this certain evaluation of that data, and then another person would kind of give an, an opposing evaluation of the same data. Someone would pitch in and say, well, here is perhaps a, a temporary solution. And then another person would come around and say, well, there's five problems with that solution because that creates all these other problems. And you can just see it goes on and on and on in 45 minutes into our meeting, and there's less clarity at hand than there was at the beginning. But there was this one person who nearly always remained quiet for the first 30 to 40 minutes of the meeting. He was processing and evaluating what was said, and like clockwork, he would eventually speak up, and he had this unique ability of understanding and simplifying all the competing voices and concerns in the room. You know, he would say, I hear person A saying this, but what they're really getting at is this. And then I hear this other group saying this, and and, and here's a summary of what they're saying. Now, the real issue we have here is this. Let's work on solving that. He cut through all the noise, and he knew exactly what we needed to address. That is what prudence is getting at in the book of Proverbs. The ability to successfully navigate various matters of life. Not just knowing a lot of information, but perceiving how things work. Perceiving how people work. The last companion of wisdom is virtue. Wisdom is not just intellectual. It's also moral. Read verse 3 with me. It's for receiving instruction in prudent behavior, doing what is right and just and fair. But you see, it's not moral in the kind of way a law is. Do not murder. That's direct. It's unambiguous. You can obey the law by just not committing murder. But remember, this is saying you need wisdom to do what is right, even when right is not clearly outlined in a law. That means you can be immoral, unjust, unfair, and abide by the letter of the law. That's because wisdom can't simply be obeyed like a law can. It must be internalized. That's what we call virtue. The person who acts out of virtue acts out of a heart that's committed to being just and fair and righteous. They don't just do just and fair and righteous things. You see the difference? If you let the wisdom that you find in this book of Proverbs continually wash over you, if you reflect on these Proverbs, you let them critique you and your motivations and your desires, you humble yourself and you sit under these Proverbs and their instruction, then you are going to be the kind of person whose instincts are wired for justice and love of neighbor. That's virtue. Law-keeping says... Do not murder your neighbor. Virtue says, how can I best love my neighbor so that he'll flourish? And wisdom is what helps you love your neighbor so that he actually will flourish. So we need this wisdom. So that's what wisdom is. But who is it for? Verse 4 tells us that it's for those who are simple and those who are young. 
The book of Proverbs assumes that we enter this life as naive people. We are young, immature when it comes to wisdom. It means we're easily enticed. It means we're easily led astray. We believe everything, even bad advice. But the key here is that the simple, they can learn wisdom, whereas the foolish, they're hopeless. And the question then throughout the rest of the book is, as a, as a person who starts off simple, naive, young, immature, easily enticed, will you heed wisdom and then become wise, or will you reject wisdom and become a fool? You see in verse 5 that wisdom is also for, also for those who are already wise. Right? You don't ever get to the place where you kind of advance beyond the need of wisdom. Proverbs 26.12 says, Do you see a person that is wise in their own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than them. No, we had never advanced in our wisdom beyond our need of it. To think you've kind of graduated from the school of wisdom is to show you've really never grasped wisdom at all. Even the wise must continually add to their wisdom. So, we've looked at how to understand Proverbs. We've looked at what wisdom is and who it's for. But the most important question, right, is how do I get it? Where do we start on this journey towards wisdom? brings me to our third point, wisdom, where we begin. Let's look at verse 7 together. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. This verse is the key. It's the foundation to the book of Proverbs. Wisdom, hear me carefully, is not simply learning some principles about life and then applying them mechanically to your life. These Proverbs are not God's version of fortune cookies. God is telling us that wisdom begins with a relationship with an all-wise God. If you approach these Proverbs apart from a relationship with God— they will be of no real value to you. What, though, does this fear of the Lord mean? Is it this kind of cowering fear where we go in the corner and we're afraid of him, we don't talk to him, we don't look, we look away from him, and we just kind of, we kind of hide from him, you know, like we hide from a robber or, or hide from someone that's coming in to get us? No, it's not like that at all. This fear of the Lord is having a proper respect for God and his authority over creation. Practically, that means we place ourselves under his authority. We put our trust in him. We put our dependence on him. Do you see the word Lord in all caps there in your Bible? Do you know why it's in all caps? That's the, it's in all caps because the name that's used for God there is Yahweh, the name that highlights God's relationship with his people particularly Israel in the Old Testament. To fear the Lord is to love him, to trust him, because you are intimately related to him. 
So you see fear of the Lord, trusting the Lord, depending on the Lord, loving the Lord is not simply the most important wisdom teaching. Okay, It's not just the most important wisdom teaching, as if you can have other lesser types of wisdom apart from it. No, fear of the Lord is the foundation. It's the source of all other wisdom. Fear of the Lord is to wisdom what the alphabet is to writing and reading, what numbers are to doing mathematics. Apart from trusting the, whole, the Lord, the whole pursuit of wisdom is foolishness. And at the end of verse 7, we read this. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. This doesn't mean that fools aren't smart, that they're not bright, they're not, they're not highly intellectual. It doesn't even mean that they don't have some moral sensibilities. In fact, the book of Proverbs echoes and affirms much of the pagan wisdom of their day. You may not know this, but later in the book, a decent portion is clearly borrowed from ancient Egyptian and Sumerian wisdom literature. Now, the problem with wisdom that doesn't, so-called wisdom, that doesn't start with trust in the Lord is that it doesn't understand the big picture of life. Those who don't know their place and purpose in the universe, all the knowledge they accrue will ultimately not lead to life, but to death. The fool is like the scientist who understands the complexity of the solar system, the planetary orbits and their, and their habitats, the kind of person who, who helps put a drone on the planet of Mars but he doesn't realize that it's God who created those and who designed those planets and sustains those orbits. So, where do we start? I want this wisdom. It's so valuable. It, it, it teaches me how to successfully navigate life and all the things that come to it. Work and relationships, family, sex, money, everything that we deal with on a regular basis. The journey of wisdom starts when we trust in God and then when he begins a relationship with us. You see, wisdom isn't really about figuring out all the right rules. Okay, God does give us commands. He gives us rules and they're good for us. It doesn't diminish them. But as we already talked about, we just don't have enough of them to even know how to live most of the decisions, make most of the decisions we make in our lives. Wisdom is not about getting loads of intellectual knowledge. You can memorize the entire book of Proverbs and be a fool. You can be a brilliant philosopher or a brilliant scientist and be a fool. It's also one of the beauties of wisdom according to God and according to the Bible. It's very democratic. You know, if wisdom was all about morality, knowing the right rules, if it was all about intellect, having the right amount of knowledge, most of us in this place wouldn't have access to it, would we? Because whether you like it or not, 
the, the rules that define your life and your IQ is largely dependent on who your parents are, where you grew up, your socioeconomic status. The context of life that you grew up in determines a lot of those sm- questions of smarts. It wouldn't be as equally accessible. But you see, wisdom, you get wisdom not by being smart, not by having all the right rules, but by locating your identity in an all-wise person. The CEO and the janitor can get to this. Next week, we'll see how wisdom, this somewhat abstract concept, I've tried to fill it out today, it actually becomes personified in a character known as Lady Wisdom. Well, the grand story of Scripture says that the ultimate personification, the ultimate embodiment of wisdom is actually found in the person of Jesus. All the fortune cookies in the world would never give you what you ultimately need to live that good life. Only a relationship with Jesus, only placing your dependence and your identity in him can give you wisdom that actually becomes part of who you are, part of your nature, part of your instincts. And it's not only that, through a relationship with Jesus, you can do more than knowing many bits about wisdom, like Confucius. You can actually become wisdom. You can live that life that has true happiness, lasting joy, inner satisfaction, no matter what circumstance of life you encounter. Let's pray.